in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. And uh, carrying on the Easter Day narrative, um, chapter 20 starts off with early on the first day of the week. And our reading is taken up in verse 19, and it begins on the evening of that same day. So Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. I um, decided to have uh, the, the sermon a little earlier tonight just to give us more time to respond because I think it's the sort of uh, topic and uh, passage that perhaps would desire a bit more time for response after. So that's why we're having it here. Uh, so let's come to God's word in prayer. Um, please keep that open as well. I'd love you to keep looking at that. But let me pray. Loving Father, this is a difficult subject talking about doubt when many of us have doubts, when doubts can be debilitating. But thank you that you give us many reasons to have assurance. And I pray that as we look into this story and see a change in Thomas's heart, that each of us would believe that you could change our hearts if we're doubting tonight. So please, by your spirit, be our teacher. Help us to see truths in this passage that we may never have seen before. And may we leave here encouraged and ready for the week ahead. Amen. We're living in a world of uncertainty, aren't we? You think about just life and people out there. There's so many different things that we could have doubts or worries about. It might be financial issues. It might be relational issues. 
Some people have a particular kind of disposition towards worrying. You might be more naturally a pessimist, always able to find what could go wrong rather than being forever optimistic. Uh, And when it comes to doubts in faith, that can be even more painful, can't it? Because your faith means something to you and it's real, it's important. So having doubts can be really crippling. Uh, But doubts are common in life. Uh, In some ways, nothing has changed. Just uh, at the beginning of um, John's Gospel in chapter 4, verse 48... Jesus really gets rather frustrated with the crowds, but they're disbelieving. They struggle with unbelief and skepticism. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It was a skeptical society then. It's a skeptical society today. And of course, that skepticism and disbelief continue all through the Gospels. You saw Judas, who disowned Jesus. You saw Peter, who three times disowned him, and the rest of the disciples who were so scared that they just legged it when he was at the cross. It was only the women who were there. They struggled to believe when Jesus came back to life. And then, of course, you get to Thomas in uh, our chapter, and you read his very defiant words in chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. Do you see it there? The other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. So here's someone who's seen and testifies, but Thomas isn't having any of it. He says, no, 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 unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my fingers where the nails were and my hand in his side, I won't believe. It's a sort of defiant disbelief. And uh, he really sums up much of what our culture is about. We struggle to believe. We're skeptical. And doubts can be painful, can't they? If you're a person who's crippled with worry... It can be very debilitating. Worry can be very tiring, can't it? You may know yourself the times where you lie in bed long into the night just worrying and it's exhausting. You know that uh, worry, when it gets really hold of you, can be pretty paralyzing. It can be really difficult. Uh, And one of the things that makes it more difficult is you and I are pretty finite. And maybe worry reminds us of that. We're not God. We don't see everything. We can't do everything. Though sometimes we like to believe that we can. But when we worry, it's often because we're out of control. Because we don't hold the world in our hands. We don't have the answers to every problem. And our worry can make us feel smaller. And it can make us feel more vulnerable. And then, of course, when it comes to doubts in our faith, that can lead to half-heartedness. Why would I serve God wholeheartedly, full on, if I've got doubts and reservations about who he is, whether my faith and trust in him is real? It could also lead to joylessness. When you have doubts, when you don't have assurance as a Christian, it steals your joy. And that's not what Jesus would want. So living in a world of uncertainty, I just want you to hear really clearly, Jesus Christ wants you to have assurance. Sure, doubts are normal in some sense. We all experience them at different times. But he wants you to have assurance. And that's what we can see in this passage. Uh, I touched on it last week in Sunday morning. Um, with John's gospel it's remarkable isn't it when Jesus comes back to life and he appears before the disciples what is the first thing he chooses to say to them peace be with you I made quite a lot of that last week it's remarkable that's the first thing he wants his disciples who he knows are scared witless who legged it when he wrote that cross the first thing he wants them to know is peace be with you of course he's talking ultimately about the peace that they can have with him because he's died on the cross for them but I guess he's talking about all sorts of other peace as well In a world that is often out of control, when we feel helpless, weak, finite, Jesus wants you to have a peace, a solid, firm trust in him. So what I want to do tonight is help just briefly diagnose your doubts, try and understand what may lie beneath them. 
But then more, spend a bit of time using this story to help you to start doubting your doubts, if that makes sense. Uh, so let's just think about why we live in this sort of sceptical, doubting era. Um, I had a picture on the screen, but the, the screen's not working tonight. But uh, I was going to ask you, who's this man behind you? But it's kind of hard for you to tell, because he's not there. Uh, it's Karl Popper. Now, many of you may not have heard of Karl Popper. Some of you would. He was one of the greatest philosophers of science of the 20th century. And whether you know it or not, he's had a profound influence on the way that our generation thinks today. Uh, he wrote a really influential book called The Free Society, and in it, he kind of said that truth is evolutionary. It kind of changes, it grows with the times. And although he wasn't a, a, an atheist, he didn't completely disbelieve in God, he was very careful not to kind of nail his colors to the mast. said, belief can be dangerous. And he said, if you believe in absolutes, that, that's things that never change, that's really dangerous. Truth is evolutionary. And he, whether you know it or not, has led to the idea in our culture of this kind of relativism. There can be something true for one person, but not for another. Take it or leave it, but don't make absolute claims that have uh, impact on other people's lives. You may not think he's had profound influence, but if you look at an old dictionary and some copies of new dictionaries, some of the entries now under faith say this in the, in the latest edition. Faith is belief in the absence of evidence. And of course, that's what some dictionaries now even print, because that's the way that we're thinking. So here's a guy who you may not have heard of. He's a philosopher of science, but he's written stuff that's impacted people who have written things that you might have read. And without realizing it, this man is having a profound impact on us, because we're skeptical. Faith is the absence of evidence. I think the Bible says something different. So some people would say, don't believe, it's dangerous. Have your belief, but keep it to yourself. But don't share it and don't believe in absolutes. It's very dangerous. And that's what Karl Popper said. But some people have a kind of philosophy or way of thinking where they say, look, I just can't believe. And the reason they, they say that is, I can't believe because I hold a view which, if it's true, this can't be true. Uh, one American writer has described this as what he called defeater beliefs. He says, people hold defeater beliefs, which, if are true, mean these things can't be true. So I'll give you a couple of worked examples, okay? Uh, here's a, a truth the Bible declares. God is love, okay? If you hold a preconception here that a loving God wouldn't allow evil, when you hear that God is love, you say, well, it can't be true because I believe in a God who, if he's love, can't allow evil. So that becomes your defeater belief. You hold so tightly to what you feel that this truth can't be true. Does that make sense? Okay, defeater beliefs. Here's a second one. Uh, the truth is prayer is effective. That's what the Bible encourages us to believe. And many would testify that it is. Prayer is effective. If someone says, if God doesn't answer my prayer in the way that I want, prayer doesn't work. That's become their defeater belief that stops this being true to them. Do you see? And we've all got defeat, defeater beliefs, things that stop us believing what is true. And often these things are determined by our experience and the way that we feel, not necessarily determined by what necessarily is true. Another writer writing a few centuries before talked about what he called false faith. He says, don't kid yourself when someone comes to you and says, oh, I wish I could have your faith. He says, everyone's got faith. The question is, where do you place your faith? If you think about that, it's actually very interesting, isn't it? We've all got faith. Some choose just to place their faith in fate or in the fact that there's no God or in themselves, but they're still trusting something. And in that sense, every human being is a person of faith. 
The question is, what do you trust? Uh, One last thing to say on this. If you're a doubter, if you doubt something, perhaps you doubt that you can have complete assurance in your faith, you're actually choosing to believe something else, aren't you? If I'm choosing to live with doubt, I'm choosing that I can't believe that something could be true for me and I could have assurance. I'm sure it's more complicated than that. There's all sorts of pastoral things that pile into it. But when you have doubts, you are choosing to believe that perhaps you can't have assurance. And as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't want you to live like that. So that's just a little bit diagnosing your doubts, because it is interesting that the way that we are as a society has been determined by big thinkers in the past who have taught us, you can't believe this stuff. And so we've all get caught up on these defeater beliefs, which if we hold are true, mean these things can't be true. So we need to start dealing with these things that become blockages, if that makes sense. So here's something that's more important, though. Having moved through some of the sort of stuff in the background, diagnosing, I want to help you to have complete and utter confidence in what you believe. And that's why this story is great, okay? I want you to begin to doubt your doubts. And I've got six things. They're quite short, but six things in this passage. Don't feel you have to remember all the headings. Uh, You can always listen to the talk again if you want them. But I want you to latch on to the one that will help you with where you're at with your faith, okay? If some of them don't help you, then they'll help other people. Here's the first one. I want to encourage you that belief is sensible. Uh, You look at chapters 19 and 20 in John, there are many, many uses of the word see or seeing. Uh, I talked about that last week. Jesus wants you to see him. So do you see why it's a bit puzzling when you get to chapter 20? Look at verse 29. It's almost ironic, isn't it? Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We've got two chapters all about seeing, and then Jesus comes along and says, but you can be blessed if you don't see. And you're kind of thinking, what? That makes no sense at all. Some people make the mistake of saying, look, if Jesus just came into this room, I'd believe. If I could just see him. Maybe you've said that to yourself before, but I want to encourage you, don't be naive, because many, many people saw Jesus. Many people saw him perform miracles in front of their very eyes. And because of the hardness of their heart, they still didn't believe. So you and I aren't worse off because we can't see Jesus. Actually, we're better off. And I want to explain why. The writer to the Romans, Paul, says, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Okay. Now go back to the end of the last story that I looked at last Sunday morning. Chapter 20, verse 8. This is John talking in the third person about himself. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside. What does it say? He saw and believed. And what did he see? Because he didn't see Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't there. Because he'd risen. He saw, but he didn't see. Does that make sense? And that's in that sense why belief is sensible, because we have written for us an account of Jesus' life which enables us to see with greater certainty, actually, than some of the disciples who couldn't have that. Think about how a jury works, okay? A jury is called to a court when there's been a crime committed. A jury has never seen the crime. But what does the jury do? It looks at the evidence, it listens to the evidence, and it's able to build a picture of what actually happened, and then they make an informed decision that prosecutes or releases a potential convict. 
In that sense, faith is never a blind stab in the dark. You read verse 29, where Jesus says to Thomas, look, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You can't read that verse on its own and go, well, there you go, faith is just blind, just trust me. Verse 29 comes before verse 13, 31. And what does Jesus say? John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in these books, but these are written that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. They're written down. What did uh, Peter, one of the first apostles, say? We didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses. See, they had seen and then they wrote what they saw. And when we listen to God as he speaks through his word, we see him. We don't see him because he's not there, but we see him in the sense that John saw Jesus even though Jesus wasn't in the tomb. Does that make sense? So you can have complete confidence in who God is based on reading the scriptures and trusting. You know, if you're a person who has lots of doubts, but you very rarely pick up your Bible to listen to God, it's not surprising that you continue having doubts because God wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to hear promises of who he is. Belief is sensible. And we have the scriptures, which means actually we're far more privileged than the first disciples ever were. Second thing, belief is a gift. Belief is a gift. Uh, If you're a person who does have doubts, and some of us struggle with doubts more than others, I don't want you to feel condemned for your doubts. Do you notice how Jesus handled Thomas when Thomas defiantly says, I won't believe unless I see the hand marks and the nail marks. I won't believe. Jesus was very gracious with him. What did Jesus do? He comes into the room and he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. But having done that, he then challenges um, Thomas and says, look, put your hands in my, uh, put your fingers in my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. But notice he did not dismiss Thomas. He didn't say, Thomas, you doubted, get out of here. You, you have doubts, you're a weak Christian, I don't care. Jesus is compassionate towards people who have doubts. And you will have doubts, and I have doubts, and other people have doubts. Jesus walks towards people who have doubts, and he loves you, and he's compassionate for you. But as you look at the person of Thomas, yes, in one sense, he represents a doubter. But do you notice in the story, he also represents a believer. See, maybe you're saying tonight, I'm just a doubter. I always have been. I always will be. And Jesus would want to come and put his arm around you and look at you in the eye and love you. Just like he did to Thomas and say, I know you're a doubter, but you don't always have to be. I love you. And I want to help you to realize that what is true about me is true. And you can trust it. And in the same way that he was gracious to Thomas, he would want to be gracious to you if you're a person who has doubts. Uh, Listen to what one Australian writer has said. The grace of God in the gospel is the sovereign working of God by which the objective facts of the gospel, that's the stuff over here we talked about, becomes the subjective reality for the believer. The grace of God in the gospel is the sovereign working of God where the objective facts of the gospel become the subjective reality for the believer. So what he's saying is it takes the the work of God's spirit to take what is true that we often struggle to believe because of our defeated beliefs here 
but he applies them into our life so they become real to us. And in that sense, belief is a gift. Because Jesus is saying, I want you to believe, and I'm giving you good reason to believe. But will you? As he holds that gift out, you have to say, well, I'm going to take that gift and receive it. Well, I'm just going to keep being a doubter, because that's all I ever know. Jesus says you don't need to always doubt. And I want you to be encouraged as you look at Thomas. He came to Jesus as a doubter. He left as a believer. So not only is belief sensible, belief is a gift. And here's something that I hope will blow your mind. Belief is a privilege. Do you notice in verse 28? When, Jesus, when Thomas sees Jesus, he says, My Lord and my God. Now to speak of Jesus in those terms is ascribing to Jesus everything that the people of God in the Old Testament would have said of Yahweh. And we looked at the great I am, didn't we, a few weeks ago. The great I am, the great faithful God who has done everything for his people. Thomas looks at Jesus and calls him Lord. He's saying of Jesus, you are God. So I want you to grasp again that believing in who he is is an incredible privilege. That the God of the universe who sees everything and created you wants to know you. Perhaps if that's the only thing you take away tonight, you take away the fact that Belief is a privilege. The God who made everything wants to know you personally. I think that's staggering. Notice too that belief is personal. What does he say at the beginning of verse 28? My Lord and my God. Do you remember how John's gospel starts? It kind of starts all cosmic. Big, big picture. In the beginning, you know the words, don't you? We have them at Christmas all the time. In the beginning was the Word, a name for God, at Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's a pretty massive statement about Jesus Christ. He is God. That should blow your mind. But then what goes on in verse 14 of chapter 1? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God, in all his fullness, became a human being. So not only is belief a privilege, belief can be very personal. Because God is not just a deity out there that I know about. He's a God who's in here, who's real to me, who actually makes a difference. And when you grasp that, then suddenly your desire to want to know him will go through the roof because you realize here's a God who's so much bigger than me but a God that I can know. That's a staggering truth. So belief is sensible. Belief is a gift. Belief is a privilege. And belief is personal. Just two to finish. Because those things are true, belief carries with it responsibility. In the ancient world, Caesar the Roman Caesar, he was God. Emperor worship was rife. People would worship the emperor. Now today we don't worship the emperor, but we worship all sorts of things that aren't God. It might be you worship a person. It might be you worship your family. You might worship wealth or your job. I think in the age of the iPhone, interestingly, a lot of us worship ourselves because life's just about me. What I can get out, what I can do, what I enjoy, and I have my iPhone because life's about me. And we don't say it like that, but we actually act like that. And we know it's true. 
And so it's into a world that's completely and utterly lost, into a world that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord, that if you do know, if you believe, that comes with a responsibility, and it's a responsibility to lift his name up and to make his name great. And as you do that, you're just joining in what the disciples have already done themselves. You go back to the beginning of John. Jesus says, uh, John says in chapter 1, verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Here is someone who saw and is then sent out to proclaim that news to others. Uh, you see Andrew a little bit later on, chapter 1, verse 43. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tells him, We have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. And then you get Thomas, chapter 20, at the end of the gospel. My Lord and my God. And I made that point last week in the morning, didn't I? The end of chapter 20, those who see are sent. And so if you believe in who Jesus Christ is, if he's worked in your life, you do have a responsibility under him as his spirit enables you to be someone who goes out and proclaims him. In a world of the iPhone, which is all about me, our responsibility as a church is to say, no, no, it's all about him. That's an amazing responsibility. I think we could take far more risks as a church in proclaiming him. So often we're so worried about what people think of us. We're so worried that we've got to wait for a better opportunity. The reality is we never share him with anyone. And yet, when we believe that this is true, why would we want to withhold this amazing news from a lost world? A world where we began, that's anxious, that's worried, that's lost, and yet we have an answer in Jesus Christ. Belief carries responsibility. And finally, belief carries eternal consequences. Do you see how uh, chapter 20 ends? It's almost like the, the summary of the whole of the gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's three key things in those verse. Signs, belief, life. Jesus performed signs to prove that he was God. He calls us to believe in him, not just because he's an egotist. He calls us to believe in him because he is the one who gives us life. We saw that in chapter 14, didn't we? I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, belief has a goal, and it is a matter of life and death. And if you have believed, if you have trusted in Jesus and seen him, though you haven't seen him, then you can be completely sure of the life that he offers you. Eternal life, but also a sense of purpose and satisfaction now. But if you've not believed, even though you've seen, then that life is not yours. And that's a reality for many people that you and I know who don't yet know him. So one last thought to close on. Where John here writes, verse 31, believe, I think it could easily have a double meaning. In one sense, it's a discipling meaning for the Christian, the believer. He's saying, you have believed, you've seen, you have believed, and it's like an encouragement. Keep on believing. Even living in a world of doubts with all these defeated beliefs, keep on trusting me. Keep on trusting on what I've said. Keep going. And that might be the message for the majority here. Keep trusting but equally, there may be some who need to hear the more evangelistic challenge in that word, where John is almost saying, a bit like Jesus did to Thomas, to a doubter, you can believe. You can. You don't need to go through the whole of your life being skeptical, being worried, not having assurance. You've got every reason to believe. 
because this man has come into the world. He's died on a cross for you. And we have everything about his life and work written here for your encouragement. You can believe. You don't need to keep on going on doubting. So I want to encourage you, in a world full of doubts, Jesus is the one who offers each of us assurance. But it's a gift, and we have to receive it. And there's a massive difference between knowing about Jesus and truly knowing him. And I think and pray that as we look at the example of Thomas, we see someone who Jesus dealt with graciously, a doubter who became a believer because he trusted in what he'd seen.